Well, good morning. Call the Tights. My name is Aaron Wheeler. I'm the small groups minister here at the church. And I want to let you know, to start us out in our sermon today, we're going to need some audience participation. I'm going to need you to be here with me. Uh, how this is going to work is I'm going to give you some images that I want you to just kind of emotionally, verbally respond to. You know, whatever in that moment, when you see this thing, whatever comes up, I want it to come out. Let me give you a, a little test run on how this goes. Let's, let's say, for example, I was going to show you something that was very surprising. So I'm looking for this. There we go. See, a little preemptive, but that's fine. I want you to, we're going to do this all together as one people. Uh, if I were to show you something surprising, I'm going to count to three. I want you to react in a verbally surprised way. Are you ready? Here we go. One, two, three. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. That's what we want to happen. I want you to react in whatever way that is. You can clap, you can boo, you can do anything in between. Just give me something. You ready? Okay, look up on the screen. Here's our first image. Yeah, look at that. I, uh, I'll confess to you, I'm not a dog guy. I'm really not. Uh, but if that thing showed up on my doorstep, I might change my mind. Uh, let's give you the second one. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, that's, of course, a tarantula. That particular family uh, is native to Oklahoma. So uh, one more reason to avoid Muskogee, am I right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, one more. And then uh, let's go with the third one here. Uh, a, little, uh, a little in between. A little reaction on both ends. A little uh, Sunday morning controversy, can we? You weren't sure how to react. You're like, I don't know if the person next to me is going to agree. And, you know, we kind of get in that place. It's, it's, it's fun. I just wanted a sports thing is all I wanted to do. Originally, I thought I was going to put Patrick Mahomes up there. Uh, but I'm trying to be sensitive to the Chiefs fans. I know third and ten wasn't that long ago. And so, you know, I don't want you to feel the trauma of that moment again too soon. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm thinking about you. I got one more. It's not up on the screen. It's this thing sitting here right next to me. This time, I don't want you to react. I want you to keep it inside. How do we feel? How do we react when we see this? This is not a bird feeder, despite its appearance. This is the church. It's complicated, isn't it? I don't know about your story, but if it's anything like mine, this place is on the one hand the home of some of my greatest joys and also the place where I have experienced my deepest wounds. It's complicated. We react to things because we have experience. Because we know what cute puppies are like, because we know what the church is, and it's all of these things that get mixed up in this reputation and experience of what something is and what something does, and it's, it's all very complicated. I think a word for what we're talking about here is identity. Identity is huge whether we recognize it or not, how we see ourselves tells us a lot. I would venture to guess that if we all had the time to talk about the issues in our lives, if we really rooted those out, that the root of the root of the root of our issues oftentimes comes back to this word up here. 
what is identity? How do we understand it? Let me try to simplify it as best I can. I think identity is really just two words, four letters. It's be and it's do. It's who we are, how we define ourselves and our communities, and it's also the actions that we take. And and I really think these two things live in relationship with one another. I think it's kind of like this. If we take the B, our understanding of self and everything that goes there, and we take the do, the actions, that this identity results in the things that we do, and the things that we do reinforce what we believe about ourselves. I uh, talk with my students at Ozark about this quite a bit, and I use the example for them. They're, they're college students. College students is part of their identity, and, and we can see this relationship in action because if you're a college student, there's certain things that you have to do. There are certain actions that flow out of that. You've got to study for exams, and you've got to complete homework assignments, and you've got to show up to class. And if you do those things, guess what happens? You get to keep being a college student. Four, five, six, seven years. I don't know what it is. But you get to keep being that thing because your actions match your identity. But if not, if you don't do the things that you're supposed to do as a college student, guess what? You don't get to be a college student anymore. This relationship between who we are and what we do is, I think, the biggest point that we're finding in our text today. We are, of course, in 1 John. Go ahead and go there with me. We are in our series of What is Love? Dr. Scott, the last two weeks, he talked about what love is and what love isn't. Today, we're going to talk about how that love plays a part in us, how we, as the church here, are supposed to be a place of love. Now, let me warn you, when we get to the text here, we're in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to be a little bit all over the place here, and I think that's okay because John is too. I mean, John is like not a preacher-friendly writer. He doesn't go through like systematically presenting a point. He's just all over the map. He's like, it's about love, and it's about hate, and it's about sin, and it's about redemption. And, uh, oh man, it's hard to prepare a sermon on this guy. In fact, I don't know if you're into New Testament archaeology of it all, but they recently found a picture of John as he was writing this book. Uh, it's up there on the screen. Uh, you know, he's kind of he's kind of just all over the place. And so if he's all over the place, I feel like I have the right to be too. So we're going to start in verse 7. John says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who has the actions that match the identity, a righteous person does righteous things, and as they do those righteous things, they feel more righteous. That's how the cycle works, except when it doesn't. Because I think what happens in this complex thing of identity is that there are things that are done to us and things that we do And they create this, what I call, our false self. It's this lie about who we are. It's this misunderstanding of what we've been created to be. And out of that false self, of course, comes a whole lot of false actions. 
And we find ourselves in a place doing things that we would never otherwise do, doing things that we know we're not supposed to, that don't match who we are and what we're about. And the cycle just continues. And we find ourselves over and over again in this place, lost and broken. John talks about that a whole lot here. He says in verse 6, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seeds remain in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. We have a proverb in our culture that says you are what you eat. I think John would say you are what you do. And we get messed up in this cycle. Let me... Let me give you an extreme example of this. There's a guy by the name of Sammy the Bull Gonvano. He's Italian, mafia hitman. He uh, was arrested in the 70s for his crimes, and uh, much later he was doing an interview with Diane Sawyer, and she was just kind of fascinated by this dude. You know, what is it about a person that gets them to the place where they're like day-to-day, nine-to-five is murdering people? And she goes and she interviews him, and she's just amazed as this interview goes on how this guy is just so casual about the whole thing, casual about who he is and what he's become. She actually, to try to kind of provoke him, she gets a list of the 19 people that he has been convicted of killing. 19, more than your average serial killer. And again, he's just not reacting to this. And she kind of gets incredulous. And she points out his own brother-in-law on the list. And she says, did you ever at any point just ask yourself, what have I become? Who am I that I could live my life doing these things? And his response was chilling. He said, I'm a gangster. That's exactly what I am. And we experience this cycle on a, on a hopefully a smaller scale. We think that we're ugly. We think that we're unworthy. We think that we're unlovable. And so we do things that those kind of people do. And we find ourselves in this cycle and we want to change. But how? Oftentimes, when we want change to occur in our lives, we, we focus on the do part. We focus on behavior management, and that's good and true and right. But I wish sometimes we would focus so much more over here. I wish we would focus on our identity. I wish we would talk about who we are and how that'll change everything about us. Because I think sometimes we forget this, and I think sometimes we just never knew. So how do we go about that? Common knowledge and social science will tell you you have two options for discovering your identity. One source is inside of you. It's your feelings. It's, it's how you feel about stuff, how you react to stuff. Whatever feels good and genuine and right, that's who you are. And your goal is to pursue that right feeling as far as you can. And that's the source to peace and happiness. Other people say, no, 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 your identity comes from outside yourself. It's how people think of you. It's your status and your titles and your wealth and your followers and your likes. And it's the image that you can put up that that's the reality of who you are. And I think we can, we can agree that both of those options are quite 
problematic. So what other choice is left? Let me give you a third option. Last month, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel. It's really the first time we've been able to do that uh, since we've had kids. Grandma and Grandpa came down. Uh, my wife had a conference she had to attend in Europe. I hitched a ride. It was wonderful eight days traveling and doing things that we don't usually get to do across Amsterdam and Paris. One of the things that we did a lot of was spending time in art museums. I don't know if that's your idea of a good time. Uh, if you've ever wanted to know how many art museums is too many in a week, the answer is four. <laughs> First time is great. Second time is even greater. Third time, you start to get a little overwhelmed. Fourth time, you're like, I'm just going to be in the gift shop looking for a Snickers bar. I'm done with this whole thing. The answer is four. If you ever wanted to know. But uh, one of the things that we learned quickly is that if you're going to make use of your time in an art museum, you have to have a guide. You have to have, you can pay someone who kind of takes you around, they hold their little flag up there and they explain each painting as you go by. Or you can buy the, the ones for yourself, you know, the audio guides that you put on. But you got to have those things because otherwise you're just walking around going, yep, that's another painting of a dude in a fancy shirt. <laughs> it's meaningless if you don't know it. And these guys, they help you. They tell you who the artist is. They tell you the history of that person, kind of what was going on in their life when they painted this painting, what they're really trying to say, what they're trying to communicate through this artwork. But I always had this kind of morbid curiosity of like, what would happen if, you know, this, this guide is standing in the middle in front of this painting with all these people around him? And what would happen if the artist could show up at that moment? Like, what if Van Gogh just suddenly appears and the lady's talking about all this kind of stuff and he just goes, ah, actually, no. That's, that's not what happened at all. I mean, sometimes a flower's just a flower. Ah. Uh, I mean, in that moment, if that happened, it's not like the guide could argue. It's not like they're like, well, no, Vincent, what you actually meant was this. And if he, if he says no, that's, that's the end of the conversation. Because the artist gets to decide what their art's about. Or if I could put it another way to talk about this stuff, it's the creator who defines the creation. You won't find it inside of you and you won't find it from what people say. Who we are is defined by him. And we see that in our passage this morning. We see it in what I think is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. It's chapter 3, verse 1, where John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That his message about who we are to be, this identity stuff, is wrapped into this concept of being his child. And I fear sometimes, honestly, that we, you know, say that occasionally, we sing songs about it, and it just becomes one of those church words that we just throw out and expect people to understand. Because what is that at the end of the day? What does it mean to be his child? I'll be honest with you, I, I don't have time to explain the whole thing this morning, and I don't know that explanation is really the best way to go about it. I think being a child is often felt more than it's understood. And so instead of spending time trying to exegete this thing, why don't I just instead tell you a story? 
It's a story that comes from Jesus. It's in the book of Luke. Go ahead and go there. Luke chapter 15. We see here that Jesus is in the midst of a lot of stories, and he goes into this one. He says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. That's something that we in our Western ears, we just kind of gloss over and we forget the fact that Jesus just like dropped a narrative bomb right there. I mean, if in ancient Eastern culture, if you are one of the sons who gets inheritance, you don't get to ask for that thing early. To do so is basically going to your father and saying, drop dead. And in a culture that's built on honor and shame, there's no greater way for a son to shame his father. It's the father who loses here first. He's the one who has to experience not only one of his beloved children, his source of greatest pride has left him, but you can imagine how this works. You know, some of you are from small towns. You know how word travels? And you can imagine with the people in the village, because this is, you know, this is a well-known guy. He's wealthy. He's got standing. He's got status. And now the gossip mill is running at full speed. Did you hear about what's, uh, what happened over there? Did you hear what the son did? And all that status and all that honor is lost in this moment of shame. The story then focuses on the younger son. It says, not long after that, he got together all he had, set off for the distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And then it comes. So he went out and noticed the language, hired himself out. We know what that means. To a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. What Jesus paints a picture there is just layer after layer of shame. Everything a good Jewish boy would want nothing of. This is the definition of rock bottom. In verse 17, it says that he came to his senses, though. He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And notice how that has to happen. For him to be able to see the son while he's still far away, the father has to be looking. He has to be standing out there day after day and night after night in anticipation of this moment when the son would come home. And when he does, it says that he was filled with compassion, ran to his son, all dignity out the window, threw his arms around and kissed him. And the son says to his father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father, he's not even listening to what he's saying. He goes to the servants and he says, quick, here it comes again. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Just like we had four shames earlier, we now have four honors. This is strategic. 
He gives them a robe first because that's what you clothe yourself with. That's what you cover yourself with. That's a status, a symbol of honor. We saw it just a few weeks ago when Elijah was on his way out and and names his successor Elijah and gives him that coat, his mantle of leadership. We see this in Romans 13 where Paul says to clothe yourselves with Christ. He gives him the ring, which is this piece of identity that says you are a part of this family that gives you the right to seal documents to prove that this is genuine and real. We see that in Ephesians 1 when we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promise of our inheritance. He gives them sandals because... Back in those days, you know, the ground was full of feces and filth. And the only way to keep yourself pure was to have something between you and the ground. And then the feast. And then the fattened calf, an extreme showing of wealth. A once-in-a-generation kind of party that they invite the whole town to come participate in. Sounds a lot like the Feast of the Lamb to me. Four honors to restore the son back to a place of relationship. The father says, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And that's what it means to be a child of God. It means that your sin is done away with. It means that you can be restored to a place of being a son and daughter. It means that you come home again and receive the mercy and grace that the Father gives to you. That's what it means to be his child. And I wish that the story ended there. We know, though, that it doesn't. Let me pick my Bible back up off the ground. We know that it's not a parable of the lost son, despite what your Bible says at the top of the heading. We know that it's not just about one. I mean, it's not like exegetical magic. It's verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. It's right there. He had two sons because he had two audiences. That's at the start of chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. There's audience number one. And in verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's audience number two. And it's here that their character enters the story. Meanwhile... The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. They would notice that, by the way. You throw a big party and you invite the whole town there. They're going to notice that the heir and the son is refusing to go in. This is now the time that the older brother shames his father. And he feels it then too. Because father goes out and pleads with him. But he answered his father, look. Do you imagine having a conversation with your child that begins that way? Look. 
All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours refused to call him his own brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you, fi- you kill the fattened calf for him. It's quite a reaction. And I'll be honest with you. There's days that I sympathize with that older brother. There's times where I go, you know, he's, uh, he's kind of got a point. It's on days when I, I walk out of this place. And I go to my car in the parking lot and my mind is filled with grumbling and criticisms and complaints. Because I have my own way of doing things. And I wish that when we gather together in this place that we did more of this and less of that. And I want it to be about me and what I think is best and what comforts me the most and what makes me happy, what gives me peace. That's what I want these meetings to be about. And the Father in his love and in his compassion, he says to me, Son, this isn't about you. This place doesn't happen. This, this meeting doesn't exist to give you what you want and to make you happy. This place is a celebration of the love of the Father and the way that he continues to call his sons and his daughters to come home. Tim Keller in his commentary on this passage says that the sin of the older brother is that he cared more about the father's things than the father's heart. Brothers and sisters, this morning when we look around at this place, this is all just things. The songs that we choose and the type of sermons that we preach and the decorations in the atrium and the hallways that we get to walk down and the bathrooms that we have access to, they're all just things. And when we start caring more about those things than about what this place means and about what's being accomplished, we've forgotten who we are. The father, though, in his love for both sons, invites him back in. He says, my son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. As I tried to prepare for the sermon, I, I came across a website that uh, catalogs all the different ways that artists have, have kind of depicted this scene. It's just painting after painting throughout the centuries of people who've, who've kind of captured the images of the, of the son returning to the father. Most of them look a bit like this. So we can put that one on the screen. Uh, it's focusing on the father and the son, kind of the singular characters in the story. You know, can we kind of make that mistake? It's very rare that someone puts more people in the picture. One of those is, is this one here. It's done by the master Rembrandt. Rembrandt is famous most of all for the way that he handles light. 
the way that he's able to kind of shape and highlight the things that he wants you to pay attention to the most. I mean, it's called Rembrandt lighting. And generally, if anything's named after you, you kind of nailed it. I mean, that's how that works. That's certainly the case for him. And look at the way that he highlights this scene here. We're going we're to zoom in and focus on a few things. First of all, we see the feet of the younger son. We see the tattered clothing, the exposed skin, the filth that's everywhere. We see the sandals that one has completely fallen off, the other one's just barely hanging on. We see the rock bottom of our sin and our shame that has covered us. And you go up a little bit further, and you have this here. This is powerful. You kind of notice maybe first the, the son's head, it's been shaven. That's very practical. He's probably diseased. Probably has lice and fleas and who knows what other kind of stuff. And he loses all dignity by just trying to survive and make it through the day. But we see on both sides of that shameful head, the hands of the father. Notice how the hands are different. It's not a mistake. Rembrandt is a master. He doesn't just like not know how to do hands. He's, I think, making a very deep theological statement here. Because notice the one hand, it's, it's strong, it's muscular. You just kind of see the muscles rippling there. I think he's making a statement about God's justice. That this is the God who pours out his wrath on his son. This is the God who understands that the violence of the cross is necessary for our sin to be atoned for. But then we have the other hand, the one that's longer and leaner and soft and gentle. The one who gives the mercy and grace and forgiveness on the cross. And they both have to be there to embrace the Son completely. And then notice the face. This light, it's kind of hard to see. But he's got his eyes closed. And there's the beginning of a smile that's crossing his face. I was blown away when I, when I saw that face because I've seen that face so many times. I'm a dad. I've got four kids. My house is insane all the time. One of my favorite things about being a father is, uh, is when my kids are about one year old and, uh, you know, they're just beginning to kind of like move and do life and have their own will. And so during the day, it's just insanity all the time. They want to run around and get in things and you're trying to make sure they don't die. And then at the end of the day, you've got to calm all that down. And, you know, you have strategies about bath time and combing hair and reading more books than humanly possible. And my favorite moment, though, is when you pick up that child and you hold them in your arms and you sing. And you can feel it. You can feel every muscle in that little body relax. As they begin to fall asleep, and so many times in that moment, I look down to my child in the dim light of the bedroom, and I see that face. A child at peace and trust in the loving arms of the Father. We go up a little further, and we see the face of the Father. This one's also interesting. It's, again, a little hard to see in this light, but his, his eyes are actually going two directions. He's, he's cross-eyed. Again, not a mistake. You know, not mess up eyes. 
I think Rembrandt's, again, making another statement because one eye is looking directly down at the son who has come home and the other eye is looking out. And I think he's talking about the father who's still looking, still waiting for his sons and daughters to come home. And again, I'd love it if that's all there was to this. But we know there's another character in the story. It's this one here, the older brother. Notice how uh, he's like an identical twin to the dad. He's got the same hat, same beard, same hairstyle, same coat, all that kind of stuff. He is a guy who has lived his life trying to put on the image of the father. He probably like goes to church every Sunday leads a small group, volunteers in the children's nursery as a regular tither. He's got all that exterior stuff that he says, I am one with the Father. But in the midst of all of those good deeds, loses his heart. And while the outside looks good, his interior side shows itself in his posture and his attitude, and he couldn't be more different than the Father. It's a story about two sons. Both are lost. One is lost because of his bad deeds. One is lost because he thinks his good deeds entitle him. And in the midst of that, pride is separated from the father. Go back and put the whole image up there. There's more to this. Because of the guy who painted it, Rembrandt is painting this painting at the end of his life, and he's, he's telling his own story here. He was a guy who, who came into money and wealth and fame very young in his life. He just kind of became popular real, real early, and, and part of that was he, he married this very wealthy daughter of this family, and he had more money than he knew what to do with, and so he kind of lived the younger brother life in craziness and in sin and in all this kind of stuff, and then his wife died, and he was cut off from that money. He found himself severely in debt and lost everything that he had once had. And shortly in that time period in his life, he painted a painting, not this one. This one's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. He painted one called The Prodigal Son. It's this image of a guy cavorting with women and wine. It's actually a self-portrait. He put his own face up there because he identifies so deeply with his story. But he's one of the few to put the older brother in the picture. And the more that we learn about him, the more we can see why. Because years later, after his wife died, after he's penniless with, with nothing, somehow he manages to take in a housekeeper. They become lovers. They can't marry the woman because of the way his estate and his inheritance and all that kind of stuff works. It just was impossible. And the church finds out about it. They can't do anything with Rembrandt because he himself has never formally joined the church, but his mistress has. And so they take her before the church council and they force her to confess that she is pregnant with Rembrandt's child. And they rain a whole list of punishments upon her, ending with the fact that they ban her from the church forever. And she comes home to Rembrandt broken 
and separated from her people. And she dies at the young age of 38, brokenhearted. And it's after Rembrandt buries this woman that he loves that he paints this. Because he knows what older brothers are like. Because he knows what it means to shut the door in people's faces. John ends our passage this morning with a warning. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says, This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Seems to speak of the younger brother there. And to the older one, he says this, Nor is anyone who who does not love his brother or sister. I know I'm kind of new around here. I know that I've only been on staff about a year. I've only been going to this church for about three. And the longer I'm here, I'm going to be honest, the more that I've learned to love about this place. Like we have ministries specifically devoted with people with disabilities to support their family and friends as they walk along that journey. That's amazing. We have decades of systems where we take our brightest and our best and we inspire them with a love for lost people and we send them to unreached people groups, places where they can be the church where there is no church. We have a long legacy of top-notch Bible teaching where we take the truth of God and we put it in people's hearts and minds and thousands of lives have been changed. We have children's and youth programs led by people who believe not in entertainment, not in making kids happy, but in making disciples, not just of all nations, but of all ages. And that legacy continues to build generation after generation. There's so much about this church to be proud of. There's so much that God has done among this place. But if I'm honest, I've seen other things too. I've seen a lot of older brother talk and a lot of older brother thinking and a lot of harsh words that have been said out of the older brother mouth. And it's tough. And I get it. I understand what it's like to be in that place. I understand what it's like to want things to change. And let me be crystal clear on this. Being an older brother has nothing to do with age. It comes from all sides. It's that we change the songs too much and we don't change them enough. It's that we are too political in our sermons and that we're not talking about the issues of the day. It's that we want things to change, but we're stuck in traditions and all this kind of stuff. We get it from both sides. We want it to be about me and my way and the way that makes most sense to me. And we want our soapbox to find its place in the spotlight. And we forget who we are. That we were all one day younger brothers at the mercy of the Father, weeping at his feet. We are not entitled to anything. We forget the only reason we have any of this stuff is because God in his grace and mercy gave it to us. Who are we? 
We are a people that are loved. We know that's how the Father treats his children. And so it's about time that we acted like it. Here's my challenge to you. We're going to put this up on the screen. Go ahead and do that. Uh, This is a list of those one another passages. There's over a hundred of them in the New Testament. What I've done here is I've given you 30. You can, you can take out your phone and take a picture of it if that's how you want. It's already up on all our social media if you want to get it later. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a challenge here. You know who you are. Act like it. Here's the guide how to do it out. 30 verses, 30 days. That's how long it takes to change. What I want you to do is wake up each morning, pray that God reveals in this passage what it means to be his child, what it means to be a people of love. And then read the passage, ask God to explain that to you, and take a concrete step that day to obey what the scripture says. I think sometimes we forget. We think that what God wants from us is just to know what his word says. And I think he's much more interested in how we obey it. So do that. Challenge yourself with that. 30 days to change. We're also going to have another way that we can do that. Because in these two lost sons, the only difference between the one who stayed lost and the one who was saved was their willingness to repent. And this morning, we're going to give you a a time and an opportunity to do that. We're coming to our prayer time. We're going to ask the staff and the the elders and their spouses to come on up to the front. If you're on the prayer team, go ahead and make your way around the room. And we just want you to get a chance to confess and pray. Maybe you're the younger brother and you want to see your life changed. You want to see different things coming. You want to be a different person. And so pray and repent of those. Or maybe you see yourself as the older brother. You know you've made way too much of this about you and about your desires and your ways and your things, and you know you've messed it up. Pray and repent for those too. Let me get us started. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Father, we ask that you convict us of the ways that we have strayed off. Convict us of the ways that we need to change. Help us be the children you want us to be, for it's in your name.